Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Rather a different podcast today, I've written a book. It's a book about our social systems, our systems of government, of welfare, of money, and how they're not helping us, but hindering us. I'm publishing it with a new publisher called Unbound, which does things rather differently. They sell the book before they publish it. If enough books sell to cover costs, they publish, and if not, they don't, and money gets returned. It's crowdfunding, in other words. So, potential readers hear a pitch, and if they like the idea, they can pledge to support the book. In exchange for a pledge, you receive rewards. Rewards beyond the unadulterated pleasure of owning and reading the book yourself. The greater the pledge, the greater the reward. Anything from a mention in the book to a lavish dinner and a presentation at the Groucho Club. To find out more, please visit the website unbound.co.uk. I'll post a link on the homepage of this podcast. But as part of the pitch, I'm going to read you some of the book now, an audiobook version of one of the chapters. I've chosen part of the chapter on money, for obvious reasons, given who you are. So sit back, listen and enjoy. And once again, the website is unbound.co.uk. Chapter 7. On Money So you think that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever asked, what is the root of all money? That's a quote from Ayn Rand. Money is the blood of an economy. The delivery system, carrying oxygen, nutrients and hormones, as well as removing waste. It must be healthy. The money we use today is diseased and riddled with infection. The gulf between rich and poor is the largest it's ever been in history, yet it's increasing all the time. The richest 400 people in the world have assets equivalent to the poorest 140 million. The wealthiest 1% of Americans pocket one quarter of the country's income. They control as much as half of total wealth through such means as property, bank accounts, investments and art. That share of wealth has doubled in the past four decades. In the UK, the divide is even greater. The philosopher Plato opined in his Republic that the difference in earnings between those at the bottom of an organisation and those at the top should be six times. The great American financier, once the richest man in the world, J.P. Morgan, said it should be 20 times. Last year, Bob Diamond, Barclays CEO, and by no means the worst offender, was paid in the region of £17 million, now waived under duress. Trawling through some job websites, I see that a Barclays cashier in Wrexham in North Wales can earn £12,665. Diamond's pay packet was over a thousand times as much as his cashier's, and I'm sure there are worse paid people working for Barclays, their contract cleaners, for example. Government has taken it upon itself to redistribute wealth from top to bottom through taxation, legislation, benefits, the welfare state and so on. Yet the more it does this, the greater the gap seems to become. This is because they fail to realise that this divide is a simple, inevitable consequence of our system of money. The key to solving this colossal problem of the unequal distribution of wealth 
is a simple reform to our system of money. And such is the lack of interest in how money works. In our times, the curse is monetary illiteracy, just as an inability to read plain print was the curse of earlier centuries, said poet Ezra Pound. Monetary reform would actually be comparatively simple to implement. Its beneficial effects would be dramatic. There are three things I need to explain. How our system of money works, how this system has created and continues to create so many problems, and how to change it. We start with a brief history. Many an idealist has dreamt of a society without money, where barter reigns. Though barter's attractions are many, it doesn't work on a day-to-day -day basis. You have to want what I'm offering at the moment I want what you're offering, and those two things have to have the same value, otherwise no transaction can take place. This is known as the double coincidence of wants. If you sell peanuts and I sell sofas, barter just doesn't work. You're only going to want a sofa once every five or ten years, whereas I might want peanuts every few days. If you paid for my sofa in peanuts, you'd be giving me more peanuts than I could ever want. It's very unlikely that any trade can happen between us, even if I may actually want some of your peanuts. What is needed is some means to store the relative value of each product, which can later be used to buy something else. Money, in other words. There are lots of barter websites that have emerged and indeed thrived in recent years, giving barter a renaissance. But they all rely on some kind of system to store the value of the service you've delivered or the goods you've sold. Many use point systems. These are all, ultimately, alternative forms of money. Entirely legitimate ones, in my view, but forms of money nonetheless. Like it or loathe it, society needs money to function. Even the most primitive societies developed some kind of payment system. Early forms of money were commodity money. All sorts of different things were used. Shells, coca beans, feathers, bits of metal, tobacco, even whale's teeth. At one stage, Roman soldiers were paid in salt, from where we derive the word salary. The most successful forms of money were, of course, metals, for three good reasons. Metal has universal and intrinsic value. It's durable and it's divisible. Why is divisibility important? Different things have different costs. Divisibility brings flexibility to an exchange. One good apple might cost 60p, a smaller one 45p. But you can't really break up a shell or a feather or a whale's tooth into smaller units. They'd all lose their value immediately. Metal, however, can be divided. One ounce buys you four times as much as a quarter of an ounce and so on. Plus, there is the relative value of metals, which makes them further divisible. Gold is worth more than silver, which is worth more than nickel, which is worth more than copper. So, copper and nickel were used for low-value transactions and still are today, silver and gold for more expensive. Coins then evolved. It's thought the first were cast in 650 or 700 BC in the eastern Mediterranean. The beauty of coins is that they certify weight and metal content, while the coin issuer's stamp endorses the metal's purity. This brings surety to a transaction, which further facilitates trade.
In fact, the names of most currencies today denote either the metal, the issuer, or the weight of metal. For example, the words silver and money are interchangeable in some 90 or more different languages. Argent in French, plata in Spanish, shekel in Hebrew. The Dutch guilder simply means golden. The UK government calls its bonds gilts, which also means golden. The Scandinavian kroner refers to the crown, the issuer's stamp. The German mark and the French franc are also words that denote the authenticity of the issuer and thus the metal content of the coin. One pound sterling once meant a pound of sterling silver. Lira means the same. Once the currency of Italy, the currencies of Turkey, Lebanon, Syria and Jordan were also known as lira. A French franc was one livre. The Spanish peseta and South American peso also mean weight. The Arabic dirham was a unit of weight, known to the Romans as a drachma, a derivation of the Greek word drachma, which means a handful. The dollar, it's thought, derives from the word tailor, once a unit of weight of silver originally coined by one Count Schlick in the 16th century. From the other side of the world, the Thai baht was also a unit of weight. The Chinese yuan and Japanese yen both mean round shape, referring, of course, to the shapes of coins. For day-to-day -day transactions, gold was probably the least effective of the metals. Even a small one-eighth of an ounce gold coin, about the size of a penny or a cent, is worth a great deal, about £150 or $200 at today's prices. So the more common metals, copper, nickel and silver, were more useful here. But, for precisely the same reason, that even a small amount of gold is worth so much, gold was the most effective of the metals as a store of wealth. The practice of wearing jewellery is born of this. As well as to display wealth, jewellery is a means to store it. A half-ounce piece of jewellery around your neck might be worth the equivalent of, say, a five-pound or two-and-a-half-kilo block of copper, which is considerably less portable. If you take the entire world's gold stock and divide it by the world population, we would get about three-quarters of an ounce each. That number has actually increased from about a quarter of an ounce 200 years ago. These are amounts that are very storable on your person. But you cannot store all of your wealth about your or your partner's neck, particularly if you have a lot of it or if times are turbulent or dangerous. You need some safe location somewhere. Hence the emergence of the practice of banking. The word banks is said to have its roots in the benches, or banque, of 14th century Florence's money changers. A friend of mine, Vince Thurkettle, a professional treasure hunter, one of the UK's most successful, has another theory. He argues that the roots of the word lie elsewhere. In his work, he's found that before the days of safes and banks, when people still buried their treasure and other possessions in the open landscapes of fields, valleys or moorland, they tended to bury it in banks. Why? Because when you look at the lie of the land, banks are visible, landmarks almost, so your hoard would be easier to find when you come back. Vince suggests that the idea of banks being a place to store valuables dates back to that. Whether true or not, it's a nice idea. The practice of banking may even predate the casting of coins. 
It's thought that banks originated in ancient Mesopotamia. Royal palaces and temples provided secure places to store grain and other commodities. Receipts were issued, and when the receipt changed hands, ownership of the stored commodity changed hands too. So the receipts became a form of money. In Egypt, harvests stored in warehouses also led to the development of a system of payment. Written orders for the withdrawal of lots of grain were used to pay for things. By about 300 BC, the various grain banks, or granaries, had been transformed into a network with the centre, where all the accounts were recorded, in Alexandria. The huge variety of unstandardised coins that were circulating from the time of ancient Greece onwards gave rise to another role for bankers, the infamous money changers. Despite the bad press they've had over the years, not least in the Bible, they were performing an essential service. Different coins contained different amounts of different metal. This meant there would be constant doubt and suspicion in the marketplace as to the value i.e. the metal content, of a particular coin. With no standardisation, someone was needed to exchange them. As early as the 16th century in England, and probably before, people began to store their gold with goldsmiths. The smiths would issue receipts in exchange, known as running cash notes. Demand for a safe store accelerated during the turmoil of the English Civil War of 1642 to 1651. Over time, though initially only for larger transactions, it became more convenient to trade these goldsmiths' receipts in the marketplace, just as in Egypt, instead of the actual gold or grain. With paper replacing metal, the world was evolving from commodity to representative money. Goldsmiths were now, in effect, bankers. Some began to make money by lending out certificates, paper, against depositors' gold. There is inherent duplicity in the scheme. You are lending what is not yours to lend, but largely it worked. The depositors didn't lose anything as long as there was no bank run. Their gold was still all safe. But it was only fair that depositors should have their share. In fact, giving them their share became one of the building blocks on which modern banking is built. The goldsmith, we'll call him a banker now because that's what he is, paid the depositors one rate of interest to store their gold with him and then lent at a higher rate. The difference was his profit. In fact, in 17th century Britain, there was so much coin chipping and counterfeiting that paper from a reputable bank was in many ways preferable to actual coinage. In 1694, the Bank of England was formed by a Scot, William Patterson, to raise money for King William III's war against France. It issued notes in return for deposits of gold. Like the goldsmith's receipts, there was the promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of the note. Thus, the note could be redeemed at the bank for gold or coinage by anyone presenting it for payment. The notes were used as money. But the bank was issuing more notes of credit than it had gold to back them. Something like £1.2 million was raised in just ten days. Initially, the scheme was a great success. The navy was funded. But all this newly created money circulating in the economy quickly led to rising prices, what we today call inflation. Prices doubled in under three years. 
the bank's debt rose from £1.2 million to £16 million in the same time. This is typical of the cycle of inflation or creating money. Initially, it works and is hugely beneficial to either the issuer or the people who receive this newly created money early. They get to spend it before the rest of the economy has adjusted itself and its prices to reflect the new money in circulation. But eventually, it creates problems. More money in circulation chasing the same amount of goods usually causes rising prices. In many ways, creating new money is stealing from those who already hold it, as you're diluting the existing money's value. When prices are rising rapidly, a common psychological consequence is that people feel a need to catch up. Get-rich-quick schemes often emerge to meet this need. In the late 1600s, there was a spate of them. One was a venture that proposed to drain the Red Sea and recover Moses' gold, which he left there after he parted it all those years before. I can just imagine the promoter pushing that idea. So there we go. Thank you very much for listening to that extract, a history of money that many of you will probably already know. If you want to find out more about the book and if you want to hear the pitch, the website once again is unbound.co.uk. That's unbound.co.uk. I'm Dominic Frisby. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.